listening to Robert Wright's Non-Zero Podcast. Hi, Katie. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Well, good. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright, publisher of the Non-Zero Newsletter. This is the Non-Zero Podcast. You are Catherine Devaney. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I think of you as being situated uh, at a very interesting place on an interesting Venn diagram. Did you know that about yourself? I have heard that about myself. It took a while <laughs> to end up in this place, but here I am. Wait, does that mean you can guess which three circles I have you at the <laughs> intersection of? I can. I have one guess. I could be wrong. What, what is one of the circles? So meditation. Good. What's another? Neuroscience. Good. There's only one more to go. Psychedelics. Oh my God. This is like, <laughs> this is like ESP. This is uncanny. I'm acing this quiz about myself. This is, uh, we, you can go now. You pass the test. We're done. Uh, that was, that was impressive. Uh, so yeah, I thought that was an original thought on my part. I guess not. Uh, apparently not. So you're a neuroscientist. You've uh, done research, you're doing like brain scans of meditators. You taught a course at Stanford called Meditation in the Brain. You're also a very experienced meditator. Uh, and you have an interest in and some experience with psychedelics. And you're interested in the connections between some aspects of psychedelic experience and a meditative experience, what's going on in, in the brain and so on. Uh, we're going to talk about all this stuff. I want to begin with my standard warning uh, about psychedelics, kind of kids don't try this at home. I mean, we're 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 going to talk about some possible benefits of psychedelic use, but obviously, uh, things can go awry, and people can have very bad experiences if you don't uh, read up on this, think carefully about it, and uh, and and follow the instructions. On now, the one package. of the original thoughts about what psychedelics did is they mimicked psychosis and uh, psychotic disorders. And particularly, people have psychotic disorders. They can be precipitated by psychedelic use. So these are, substances are very powerful and should not be taken lightly. Okay, very good. Uh, the last thing I, I want to say before we start talking is that you are at a place called the Alembic, which you mm -hmm. are a co-founder of in Berkeley. A L E M B I C. Yes. Do you want to? Uh, I mean, I could. I was just reading the about page. There's some pretty, uh, pretty exotic. Uh, so, for example, well, it says it's a it's a nonprofit body mind center committed to experiments and transformation. Also says that our classes, workshops, and special events are led by an array of teachers and facilitators, contemplative masters and scientists, fringe scholars, and mm -hmm. somatic wizards, imaginal artists, and seasoned psychonauts. I hope you're not one of the fringe scholars. No, I'm not quite as fringy <laughs> as some of the people we've had. Some, okay. Okay, so go. anything else you, you want to say about the Olympic? Yeah, well, something that is even more fundamental than what's covered on the webpage is, um, well, first of all, what an Olympic is. So an Olympic is an alchemical vessel for transformation. and From the, the Middle Ages, presumably. Yes, it goes, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And you've got to remember that alchemy dates from a point where science and magic and spirituality were not different. They were all one thing. And the alchemists believed that what you put into the Alembic would not transform unless you set up conditions in the world correctly and in your mind correctly. So an Alembic is a place where mind and matter meet and transform. And so we named the physical space the Alembic because that's our aspiration for it. Is this, this container for transformation? 
And then we chose to take a pan-traditional approach. So we have representatives of a lot of different spiritual practices, movement practices, materialistic science, all these different ways of knowing so that someone can come in and try a bunch of different practices and be empowered to choose the thing that works for them. Okay. Um, that sounds good. Uh, and um, so there's a lot of places we could start. Uh, I want to eventually cover a lot of territory. Um, and maybe we could start with kind of some basics of meditation research up to this point. Now, when I uh, last looked into this uh, pretty carefully uh, before I wrote my my book, Why Buddhism is True, which came out, I guess, about five years ago, mm-hmm. one of the one of the kind of consensus findings was that when people do certain kinds of meditation, mindfulness meditation, the closely related Vipassana meditation, one thing that happens in the brain is the so-called default network mode default mode network is that right is that the term yes. default, mode, default network? mode network yeah becomes less active and that's a network that i guess among other things uh, is activated when our minds wander when we're not focused on a particular task not reading a novel or his mind's just kind of drifting to various things and so one finding was like that gets calm and i assume mm-hmm. that that finding is still intact. In fact, I know you published a paper relevant to that. You were the lead author on a paper that was relevant to that, right? Yes, and we found that the default mode network is not only uh, less active when people are at rest if they've meditated a lot. So they're not meditating. They're just uh-huh. given no tasks to do. This is the prime time that the default mode network becomes active. Uh-huh. And... Um, at rest, meditators activate the default mode network less than non-meditators. And when they're paying attention, they activate the default mode network less. So this appears to be a trait level biomarker of meditation experience. And it's the closest thing we have to a quantitative metric of meditation experience. Okay. Um, And I assume that tracks with your experience meditating um, I mean, you want to tell people uh, who may not have experience meditating, like what? Uh, just suppose you're at a at a at a vipassana retreat or a mindfulness meditation retreat. What? And you've never meditated. What? What are you kind of hoping will happen? Although I know some meditation teachers will say, "Don't hope, don't hope. Just let whatever <laughs> happens happen." Right? Just but, drop any idea. Right. Of the goal. Right. Yeah. Right. But. Um, <laughs> But uh, describe the experience. Sure. And the experience will differ. It will have different flavors across different people. Um, But typically, if you're a beginning meditator, the goal for establishing your practice and moving forward, taking kind of the first step into a practice, is to be able to investigate your experience as it's happening right now. So not your ideas about your experience, not your predictions about what's likely to happen, not your thoughts and feelings about it, but just what can I sense Mm -hmm. in my experience right now? And typically the way we do that is we aim our sensory apparatus at a, a sensory stimulus that's always around. So this is why the breath is such a common object to use mm-hmm. for meditation. The meditation object, by the way, that's lingo. That's just the thing you're paying attention to. Right. Um, 
So if you were going to start meditating on the breath, what typically happens is you begin by aiming your attention at your concept of what the breath is. And you end up kind of thinking about the breath and looking around for it. And um, over time, you start actually getting into the sensory experience like, oh, wait, I notice my upper lip gets a little cooler when I inhale, a little warmer Mm -hmm. when I exhale. So now you're having an experience of the breath rather than an idea about the breath. Right. And that goes a lot further, but that's kind of the introductory uh, step into a meditation practice. Okay. And it might seem uh, kind of ironic to people that you have to do any work to pay attention to your own sensory experience. But the thing about our normal kind of waking mode is like, if you think about sensory experiences, kind of the things you, you feel or immediately perceive visually or auditorily, the way it actually works is you bounce around between those things and thought, like your feelings shape your thoughts. So, so, so like if you see someone who we hate, you'll, you will feel briefly the feeling of hate, but that'll immediately set your thoughts off in a certain direction. And that's a different way of being from actually remaining more or less absorbed in the sensory experiences themselves. And of course, remaining absorbed in those experiences changes the thoughts. You, you don't, you're, you're less likely to get sent off on these thought trajectories, right? You see this happen with emotional experience also. Anger is a really big one. If you have anger or stress, you have some experience early in the day that makes you angry or stressed. And then for the rest of the day, you kind of tell yourself this story. Oh, I'm angry because. And now I'm going to act like this because I'm angry. But if you actually check out how your body feels, uh, you'll, you'll have like this wave of anger. But often it will just dissipate if you stop telling yourself the story. So being able Mm -hmm. to really feel what you're feeling, stress is the same way. There'll be times where you can really feel the stress. And if you're telling yourself the story, the story will seem like, oh, I've been stressed all day. But there are many, many moments of embodied relaxation that are kind of alternating with the stressful experience. If you could tune into that, it becomes a lot more bearable. Okay. And um, so once you establish some degree of concentration uh, or, or an ability to pay attention to sensory experience. And it really is, uh, you know, more dramatic than it may sound to people, uh, the, the change that that alone brings in your consciousness. Yes. But in principle, you can go into various, at least two directions I can think of. Like one is like having attained some degree of equanimity, you can kind of uh, be, you know, open to your whole perceptual field and kind of be observing whatever's going on, sounds, uh, if your eyes are closed, images, uh, feelings, whatever. But another path is to remain intensely focused on whatever whatever the initial object of concentration was, right? And you can go deeper and deeper into that. Now, I myself, uh, the one time I had what seems to me like the you know, pretty close equivalent of a psychedelic experience while just meditating, which was intensely visual, like you're in another world and blissful, that I now recognize was through uh, concentration, 
Right. I, I just stayed focused on the breath. And it was really the first time I succeeded for, for just minutes and minutes and minutes on focusing. Well, actually, it was a combination of breath and sound. It was the windows were open and there were these insects chanting. And, and I was actually I actually was doing this thing where I focused on the breath on the inhale and then sounds on the uh, on the exhale. Mm. And I, I just stayed focused on that. And that just took me into another world. Now, that's not happened since. But is that is that characteristic of kind of con concentration meditation uh, as opposed to, well, I guess you would oppose it to mindfulness meditation, but you tell me what terminology you would use. Yeah, I mean, there's this great taxonomy that Antoine Lutz um, came up with, and he binned meditative practices into three bins, uh, focused attention, open monitoring, and uh, loving kindness. So the okay. Bhava Vihara practice. And of course, each bin requires the other bins to work. You can't do loving kindness if you don't have some concentration on board. Right. Um, and some of us can't do it even then, by the way, but go <laughs> right, ahead. Yeah, some of us can't do any of these. <laughs> um, but it sounds like what you were doing was a really interesting combo of focus on the inhale and then spaciousness on the exhale. Like when well, I- Although well, even that was, yeah, I guess it was spacious, but it was, it, it shifted to the auditory, very yeah. kind of direct, you know, intentionally. When I teach my beginner students, when I want them to have, when I want to point them at spaciousness, I have them use auditory mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, input because there's just this inherent sense of a lot of spaciousness there. Whereas if we're doing visual or the breath, there's a kind of um, narrowing of focus. So it makes it easier to concentrate in that direction. Yeah. And so to answer your question, uh, if you do these deep, deep concentration, you know, you hold your concentration on one object at the expense of everything else that's going on in experience, you can get into really interesting altered states. These are called absorptive states. And the jhanas are a great example of this. And there are a lot of people who describe these kind of psychedelic visual experiences from getting really, really concentrated on one thing. Mm -hmm. um, however, there's something to be said for the amount of resource that comes from going in the other direction. So if you get your concentration high enough and then you're able to open out and kind of rest gently your mm -hmm. attention on everything that's going on in experience. So this would be more of like an open monitoring. Um, right. If something large arises, a big emotional experience, a big visionary experience, there is a sense of being in touch with a lot of space Mm -hmm. in which that experience can arise. So my teacher, uh, Michael Taft, uses the example of if you have 300 angry bees and they're in a tiny jar, you don't want to open that jar. But if you have the same 300 angry bees and they're in a gigantic field, that's fine. You could probably walk through that field. You'll be okay. Mm -hmm. So having the sense of spaciousness on board as a resource can really help when you get into the deeper, weirder, more visionary end of practice, like the like what you described. Yeah. And the open yeah. monitoring is, I, I think, useful because it's it's a part of the practice that you can kind of carry more readily into everyday life, right? I, I mean, yes. it, it, it's it's the, the part of practice that makes it easier to, like, see your anger arising in real life, like when you're at a convenience store or something, and mm -hmm. observe it rather than let it uh, capture your thoughts and behavior. It, 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 right. 
it's like letting it be there just like an airplane in the sky. Um, and if you're doing a lot of open, spacious practice, if something like that comes up in a meeting, for example, you could just drop in. Whereas mm-hmm. if you're doing a lot of ultra-focused, you know, altered state practice on the set of sensations in your knee with your eyes closed, that's a little bit harder to do when you're driving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Now, you mentioned the jhanas. Now, these are... Sure. In in certain meditative traditions, the idea is that there are these four levels or stages or something. And I think it's like, depending on whether you're looking at the Pali or the Sanskrit, rendering it's it's J-H-A-N-A or D-Y-A-N-A or so. Mm-hmm. There are various It just spellings. means to sit. It just yeah. means to sit. So yeah. uh, now this is, now you are, are you in the process of doing, I mean, we can get to what these different levels are, but you're in the process of doing actual uh MRI research on this stuff? Yeah, so I'm doing an fMRI study on the jhanas. And the way fMRI works is you need a baseline, well, for a standard fMRI experiment, there are exceptions, but for a standard fMRI experiment, you need a baseline condition uh, that gives you kind of a ground of like, okay, here's what the brain is doing in this particular state. Uh And you set that as like zero. You normalize everything to that. And then you compare other states to that baseline state. Mm -hmm. So what we often do in attention experiments is we show people uh, just a bunch of visual stimuli, and then we say, okay, now pay attention, you know, to the right side of the screen versus the left side of the screen. So we have the baseline of no attention, and then we can compare right versus left, see what that looks like in the brain. Mm -hmm. Um, The jhanas are almost an fMRI experiment just waiting to happen. It's a four-condition fMRI experiment. Do you, so, do you want to describe what the... Is it easy to say what the different... To characterize the four different stages? Sure. And so there's four form jhanas, and then there's four formless jhanas. And often people will get more into one set or the other, but there are a lot of people in their practice who go up through the form jhanas, and then they go into the formless jhanas. Um So the first four jhanas, which are called the forum jhanas, um, are bliss states, basically. So you establish a level of concentration called access concentration, called that because it gives you access to the jhanas. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the first jhana is characterized by, uh, the two terms are piti and sukha. And piti is uh, like a vibratory energy And sukha translates literally to sugar. It's bliss. Uh, So the first jhana, you have um, this a lot of energy in the body and a bliss state. In the second jhana, the PT drops out and you're left with just the sukha. So you have just this bliss state. Um, The third jhana is a stranger state and I have less experience with it. So I can do one, two, four, five, six, and seven. <laughs> so I could describe those well. <laughs> I've only done three like a couple times. Um, but So they're not necessarily successive, although they tend to be or... They tend to be. Mm-hmm. I found the formless jhanas by myself uh, while I was meditating without ever having done the form jhanas before. Mm. And I talked to a jhana teacher, who, uh, Lee Brasington, who told me that about 6% of his students find the formless jhanas first. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I typically like skip over 
agree. And then four is equanimity. And this is one of the problems with Buddhism is that everyone uses the word equanimity and a lot of people mean slightly different things. Yeah, I think so. Because to me, that seems like, well, go ahead. You keep, you, I mean, I was going to say, to me, that seems almost more accessible than the jhanas or, or, or to kind of come first. In, there is a settling in that feels more and more equanimous probably yes. before you feel anything very purely blissful. And but go so, ahead. So keep in mind, these are absorption states. So there's really nothing else happening in experience yeah. other than the state. So the first two jhanas are like overwhelming bliss. Like there's nothing other than the bliss. So in a lot of meditation techniques, you have equanimity as almost the ground in which the practice is occurring, mm -hmm. um, but it won't necessarily be the only thing going on. And that's the fourth jhana is like, all there is is equanimity. And so then when you come out of the fourth jhana, uh, it's almost like the whole system feels satiated on an atomic level, like full. It's like every cell in your body just had like a nice meal and a good glass of water. It is just like satisfied. So you're completely content with where you are. Completely. Which is, and which is, we should say, the solution to the, means that the problem the Buddha identified has been solved, right? Because mm -hmm. the problem is, in a certain sense that we always, I mean, he identified the cause of suffering as tanha or craving. And that, that doesn't have to be a really like crude animal appetite. It can just be to want things to be a little different than they are. Yes, just a subtle friction, a subtle dissatisfaction right. with experience. And so what you can do is now that every aspect of your consciousness is equanimous, you can aim your system at whatever you want and it will kind of harmoniously go there. So a lot of people use the first four jhanas to then go into doing like a Dzogchen practice. Some people which use is, it to Which do, is, that's Tibetan? Uh, yes, and that's like a just resting in awareness, like really uh -huh. deeply. Um, other people will use that equanimity to do a kind of uh, therapeutic technique. Like I, I have some friends who will then bring up a difficult like childhood memory into that container mm. of equanimity and allow it to um, kind of be freed. Uh, so you can do a lot with this state of your conscious mind is completely equanimous. Mm -hmm. So some people do the jhanas for their own sake and others use these uh, first four jhanas as a preliminary practice, like a tool to then aim their mind at something that it is now able to fully focus on. Mm. Can can I, uh, if I tell you an experience I had once on a meditation retreat, can you tell me if I was in one of the jhanas or not? Cool. It sure. was, uh, I think it had been primed by somebody who suggested to me beforehand that you could kind of sometimes control your bliss level this way. But the, it was, uh, and I don't think I've all that often felt intense, intense, intense bliss through meditation sometimes. But this was a case where I could control, I mean, my eyes are closed but I could control the bliss level by uh, moving my eyes upward or downward. Have you ever heard of anything like that? I have actually. There's, there's a whole, there's like a sub technique that does these eye movement things in order to modulate attention. It was weird. And it was yeah. like, it was like, so you could in principle bring the bliss in without end. And at some point I would just, oh my God, this is getting too intense and move That's my eyes back down. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what happens. So in like the first jhana, you get kind of sick of the right. um, 
it's like too much. Too much bliss. Pleasure. Yeah, exactly. And you want to land somewhere more peaceful. And that's what the, the first, second, third, and fourth jhanas are this series uh, of landing somewhere more peaceful. It's like you're so describing. So wait, was I in the first jhana? I would like to be that's, able to say something impressive about this. <laughs> so that sounds like uh, I'm going to sidestep the question a little and describe some jhana uh, theory, and then we'll decide together. Okay, so, okay. So um, there's... My uh, again, Michael Taft casually refers to this as the Jana Wars because everyone thinks their version of the Jana is the real thing, and everyone else is doing it wrong. Um, but the way I've seen this squared is a, like a two-dimensional matrix where every Jana has a factor, which is like the feeling of the Jana, and a depth. And so there are some teachers who say, "Oh, you're not in the first Jana unless you can." Maintain that state for three solid hours, oh. and that's how you, yeah, that's how you achieve mastery. And there are other teachers who say, oh, if you've experienced the jhana factor at all, you're in the jhana. Mm -hmm. So it depends who you ask, um, but that to me sounds like first and second jhana factors at a relatively solid depth. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so it's you know one interesting thing it seems to me about doing MRI research on this is like when I had heard about the jhanas, I had always thought, I mean, how do we know they're really a thing? It's like different people are saying, yeah, I went through this. I was in this stage. I was in that stage. This other person is saying that. And I'm sure they don't use it, happen to use left to their own devices, exactly the same words to describe them. I mean, is there, is there really this, this thing that's kind of out there that not if not all meditators many many meditators can kind of access and kind of get into these various boxes and i and i guess one interesting thing about mri research is that in principle you could find out whether these things do have distinctive brain signatures right do they have neural correlates exactly right. and that's another lens to look at this stuff with i mean it's kind of wild and to me points at this is almost certainly a thing in that we see Hindu and Buddhist and Christian practitioners all describing things that look a lot like the jhanas. Okay. So that to me points at this is a fundamental thing that the brain is doing that we can find the neural correlates of. And that will be another angle in on understanding this thing that we don't currently understand perfectly. Um, and so what we can do is compare across expert practitioners and see if their brains are looking similar when they're in uh, these, these different states. The nice thing about the jhanas, if you ask just a meditator, you know, okay, meditate and then stop meditating and we'll compare the meditating brain to the non-meditating brain. If you get 12 people, you're going to get like 14 different meditation techniques in there. And at right. least the jhanas have these common factors that should be uh, the same or very similar across practitioners of an equal level of expertise. And so far, and it's, it's very early days, uh, but I have some fMRI data. And what I'm seeing is that um, there's one part of the brain called the insula that does interoception, that is uh, sensing the body. Mm -hmm. And the insula appears to drop out in the later jhanas. Uh, and that kind of squares with what we know about what the jhanas are like subjectively. So it's very interesting. But this is like, I could talk about this on a podcast. It's not peer reviewed yet. I got to right. uh, get more data before I can, you know, stick a flag in that. So, but it's looking like you will, you will have something worth publishing at some point. 
there's yeah, the data looks really interesting. And then um, the Buddhist claim about the jhanas is that you do these jhanas so that you can do your practice. Like the point is not the jhanas in and of themselves. The point right. is to go through the jhanas so you come out and do your practice with greater attentional resources and greater equanimity. And mm. so I'm testing that claim. Um, I'm having people do a very demanding attention task before and after their jhana practice mm -hmm. and seeing if going through the jhanas improves their performance on the attention task. And so far it has in everyone I've tested. And you mentioned what for, form or formed and formless. Mm -hmm. What were and the now? So the form, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I was going to say, I mean, quickly in my experience, uh, I've heard the term formless used uh, by Theravada Buddhists to refer to what Mahayana Buddhists mean by emptiness. Uh, emptiness is a term not all that as often used in Theravada, but I, I, I've heard it used as the equivalent of emptiness, which is a Buddhist concept we could get into if we want. But first I want to ask, is there a connection? I mean, what, what do you mean by the formless? Yeah, this is a classic Buddhist, like we're going to reuse the same words. <laughs> okay. So the formless jhanas are also referred to as realms. So they're the arupa uh, ayatanas. So the arupa is form, a negates it. So arupa is formless mm -hmm. and ayatana is like sphere or realm. So these are the formless realms. And I can go through them uh, quickly. Well, is, is it experientially yeah. kind of identifiably formless as compared to the other ones? Or is that just happened to be the term? I mean, the, it, it is, yeah. it, the difference in the term is somewhat referring to the dualistic state of the first four jhanas versus the non-dualistic state of the oh. second four. So in the first four jhanas, they're concentrative absorptive states. So there's uh -huh. the practitioner is experiencing the bliss. And even in the equanimity state, the practitioner is experiencing the equanimity. Mm -hmm. So it's an absorptive state, uh, but there's still you, you are still doing it. In the formless jhanas, which are um, infinite space, infinite consciousness, nothingness, mm -hmm. and then the last one has the super descriptive name of neither perception nor non-perception. Mm, uh, glad, glad we managed to transcend that dualism. <laughs> <laughs> and in these formless jhanas, the experience is really, there is not anything other than the jhana. So the infinite space, there is no you mm -hmm. hanging out mm -hmm. in infinite space. There is only the space. Like the practitioner has right. merged with the space is maybe a way to, way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's funny. I, I think of uh, Buddhism's kind of two most radical philosophical concepts, Buddhism broadly, because I think to some extent you find them in, in pretty much all variants of Buddhism as as not self and emptiness, although again, in some circles, emptiness might go under the name formless. Um, and what you're describing sounds a little more closely connected to the not self in the yes. sense that it's transcending the self other dualism. Not that that's not related to emptiness, uh, but uh, but that's interesting. And um, and we want to eventually get around to talking about this uh, kind of exotic psychedelic that goes by the name five. Uh, wait, what is it? Uh, four? What, five, what is it? Five. MEO, five MEO or what is it? Five MEO DMT. 
Yeah. 5-MeO-DMT. Uh, and, um, and it is it promises to uh, lead to the, well, ego death, dissolution of self, whatever. Again, the standard warning, don't try this at home. In fact, uh, in Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, it's the one thing he has a really bad experience on. Um, and let, let's, but, but before we get into that, let's, um, why don't we talk about more, you know, psychedelics will be more familiar to some people, mushrooms, LSD, what what would you say generally about a connection between those and uh, meditative experience? Sure. I think for a lot of people in the West, serotonergic psychedelics like psilocybin and LSD have been an entry point to practice for mm -hmm. a lot of people. Um, and, you know, Ram Dass's guru famously said, that spirituality came to the West in the form of a substance of LSD because uh, Americans want a substance that they can buy and then consume. Um, and what you see in a lot of American in particular practitioners is that maybe they had a little bit of a practice and then had a psychedelic experience that showed them some kind of version of where the path could go. And this will, I'll just speak personally. This was my experiences. I got to see, I feel like I got to see ahead mm -hmm. and into a version of a way of being that was deeper and more connected and just to me subjectively better than my, at the time, my current way of being. And for whatever reason, I just knew that uh, that was a preview and I got to see that momentarily. And then I got dropped back into where I was and with a renewed confidence that the practice would take me there if I practiced diligently. And mm -hmm. that to some extent has been true in some, in some ways it's been much more complex than that. Um, but you know, the so Buddha do you mean there about, was a phase yeah. of your life where your, your main access to anything like this experience was psychedelic. And then you went through a phase where you just, uh, pursued the other path. Yeah. And I've seen different people do this in different orders. Um, I think it's probably a good idea to have a pretty solid practice first as mm -hmm. a basis for any kind of psychedelic experience to be a jump off point from. Um, however, I, that's not what I did. <laughs> Being American as you are. Exactly. You went so to the I, store. I, yeah. I was very interested in psychedelics for a while. And I think I learned quite a lot from them. Mm -hmm. However, the thing I got frustrated by is that I always got to see something that was, again, a sense of a deeper, um, healthier, more connected way of being. And then I always got dropped back off right where- You I mean at started. the end of the trip? Yeah, that mm -hmm. almost nothing, almost nothing changed in my way of being in any way that was like permanent and integrated. Now, this was still back in the psychedelic, you know, dark age. This was before the pollen book. We didn't, we weren't setting intentions. We weren't doing any integration. We were just kind of, you know, dropping a tab and going to the beach uh, in, in a spiritual way, but we didn't have the same tech. We had set and setting, but we didn't have the tech that's around now. Um, so the, wait, elaborate on it. So yeah. set and setting, I guess that that comes from the Timothy Leary days, meaning yes. your mindset 
uh, going in and the actual setting. Who are you with? Where are you? Is that going to be conducive to a good experience? And then when Those you say the, the, the tech, yeah. you mean what? I just mean like the, the psychotechnology of like now uh, there's all of this kind of energy around setting an intention for your journey experience and then having the experience and then doing some integration work, revisiting mm -hmm. it a week later, mm -hmm. journaling, talking about what you learned. Okay. Um, for me, you know, by a week later, I'd already done two more trips. <laughs> <laughs> so no time for journaling for no, the busy no cycle. Integration. I was going, you know, um, and the thing I got frustrated by was the same thing that Ramdas got frustrated by in the generation before me, which is that you always had to come back down. A lot of the changes you saw with psychedelics were not permanent. Mm -hmm. um, and they showed you something, but then they took it away from you. Mm -hmm. The other really big difference I've noticed between psychedelics and doing a, a slower, more gradual meditation practice is there are aspects of your perceptual apparatus, your beliefs about the world, um, the frames you're using to make meaning that are so fundamental that they're very difficult to see. And psychedelics don't by default point you back at those frames. They don't necessarily mm -hmm. make those invisible layers opaque to you. They might if you get lucky, but that's not the, the kind of move necessarily. Whereas in a meditation practice, you're eventually going to see those things, at least in my experience and my experience with some of the other students I've seen, is these lenses and frames that you use to interpret reality will eventually be seen by you. Mm. Mm. And this is part of where the neuroscience comes in. There's this um, way of interpreting uh, the way the brain works, which is the predictive processing framework. Mm -hmm. right? And um, we have a lot of beliefs and expectations about what is likely to happen in the world and what will happen in a given context. And the brain is processing information relative to those beliefs and expectations and predictions uh, more than it is relative to the sensory data coming in. Mm -hmm. And there's a theory in both uh, psychedelic and meditative neuroscience that psychedelics can uh, kind of dissolve some of these beliefs and that what meditation can do is make them visible to you in a way that they mm. aren't by default. A mm. lot of these root level beliefs about the way the world works, we don't even realize we're so what, what are some examples of these frames or lenses or beliefs or whatever that might become more visible via meditation, I guess, then via psychedelics? Uh, what are ex concrete examples? Sure. And a lot of these are become visible via meditative insight. Uh, and you have these modes of insight that can happen in psychotherapy also, where you realize, oh, I've been doing this behavior pattern since I was 11 and now I can see it and now I can work with it. Um, but in meditation, you, because you're pointing your sensory apparatus back either at back at itself mm -hmm. or you're pointing the mind back at itself or you're pointing the mind into the body. You know, you may notice something like uh, an easy example is, Oh, I carry a lot of tension in my shoulders. Mm -hmm. 
And that's related to, uh, it, it comes up when I want to control things. Mm. And you now have had an insight into a prior structure of control that was like running a part of your life and you didn't know it was there. Mm -hmm. And then once you've seen it, uh, because you've developed this meditative attention and concentration and equanimity, then you can observe it and Uh then you could choose to transmute it if you'd like. And could it be something like, so this is a part of my self-conception or the part of the way I want to think of myself and present myself that's very important to me. And if it's threatened, I feel myself like, uh, you know, you may feel it or you may just say I react. I try to fight people who confront me with narratives about me that are counter to this conception of me. Mm -hmm. And you may even notice ways that you sort out and pay attention to the parts of yourself that reinforce your self-concept and then just conveniently don't really remember the parts of yourself or your behavior that don't Mm -hmm. support the concept that you have. And this works both ways. It can work for people who are optimistic about themselves, but it can also work for people with really negative self-concepts. And you can Mm -hmm. get really negatively biased about the concepts you have about yourself and start filtering the world according to that. And when you realize you're doing that, there's a much greater uh, freedom available on the other side. So there are kinds of narratives about yourself that are more problematic than others. At the same time, I guess, in some conceptions of, of, uh, say, Buddhist thought, uh, ultimate, complete enlightenment would involve the abandonment of all narratives. Is that right? Well... we've gone pretty far pretty fast here i realize i'm just thinking of that saying like you don't want to get so enlightened that you forget your social security number no you don't you don't i think there's this um kind of fundamental confusion in some sub schools of buddhism where and it's just like it's like one degree off but the idea can get mixed up to where people are trying to kind of annihilate themselves. Mm-hmm. They think, oh, no self means I destroy my ego and then I'm free. Right. But this idea of liberating the self doesn't mean it goes away. This is related to emptiness too. It can still arise. It just arises as empty. So mm-hmm. there's a lot more space there. You still want to be able to function in the world and you need a personality and, you know, a user interface to the world, which is a self, to be able to do that. Um, But there's a way in which you can have a a self, you know, running, but you're not bought into it. You're not living inside it in quite the same way. And I've seen I've actually been both of these practitioners. So I was doing a kind of self-annihilation type practice for a while and it did not render me a particularly functional person. Uh, And now I'm practicing more in a way where like everything's allowed to be there. It's just arising as empty. You can see through it like a reflection on a lake, but it's all allowed to be there. And in that way, the project of the self can be this really beautiful uh, art of living Mm -hmm. where you can choose what elements you want to include in your way of being and allow that to express in the world in the way that's in alignment with your values, whether they're to be helpful or to, you know, to do a project that, I mean, mine are to be helpful. So I'm just thinking of all these (laughs) ways to benefit us. Um, But what's important is 
seeing the emptiness of the self doesn't mean it goes away. It just means it's allowed to express like frictionlessly and in accordance with your goals and values in the world. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, let's, uh, and just to clarify, I mean, when you were going down the path of self-negation kind of, or whatever was not so productive, that was through meditation. That was a meditative practice that was leading yeah. you that way. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I kind of absorbed a twisted version of Buddhist values and was like, oh, cool. The point is to annihilate myself and then I'll be enlightened. <laughs> so it was just the way, it was just the way you were thinking about it. It wasn't a particular tradition you were pursuing that led you there or was it? I think you see this in early practitioners a lot uh, where you, you give them a, a concept and somehow it gets really twisted and misinterpreted and then they go off in like a weird direction. Right. Um, and I get this a lot with like people who've heard of stream entry and then start asking if every little, you know, oh, my nose right. was itchy. Was that stream that entry? Stream? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like, just forget about it. Just forget about stream entry. Just do your practice. Yeah. And I think the goal of, I started meditating when I was 19. And the goal of enlightenment, permanent, stable, unchanging enlightenment <laughs> was what got me onto the cushion. Um, and then I've had to also drop that over time because enlightenment is not a concept, right? Um, but when I first started practicing, I was doing Goenka Vipassana for like 15 years right. and um, got the idea of, you know, not generating any new sankaras and just a few of the concepts that were in there, my 19-year-old mind took them in a particular way where I was just like, okay, I'm going to annihilate myself and all experience is going to stop and I will dwell mm -hmm. in some kind of like permanent experienceless peace for all time if right. I just try hard enough. <laughs> right. And we can, well, let's just say for people who aren't familiar with terminology. Uh, so when you say Goenka Vipassana, Vipassana means insight. Let's just say for now that it's closely related to mindfulness meditation. Goenka is a person who uh, helped bring uh Vipassana to the U.S. He was also, by the way, among the teachers of Joseph Goldstein, who's well known yes. for, uh, along with Sharon Salzberg and Jack Kornfeld or Field, uh, having brought, uh, founded the Insight Meditation Society uh, and and played a very big role in in, in themselves bringing Vipassana uh, to the U.S. So uh, let me just make a quick observation and then ask you some more about psychedelics. The observation is that the thing you say about psychedelics, well, it's fun while it lasts, or it's enlightening while it lasts, but then you can, you come down, the trip's over, and how enduring is it? I mean, I'd say I have heard people who say they had profoundly, well, as you know, the, the, the research shows that uh, psilocybin, I think, can help people quit smoking and things like that. True. Uh, and then on the other side, I would just say, you know, a meditation retreat has some of this property of, wow, I wish it could have more readily <laughs> endured. That experience uh, could have been more readily sustained as I re-entered the world. Yeah. Uh, and you find that, that you know, to hang on to some of uh, the form of consciousness that uh, you found so wonderful on a retreat takes regular practice. And even then, it may not be at retreat level. So to some extent, you know, it's not, it's not a, super clear cut in this regard dichotomy between the two, right? I, 
also think different people's practices benefit from different things at different times. And it's difficult to say if you go all in with just one or all in with just the other, can you get to the same place Mm. or not? I don't know. Maybe eventually we'll know. Maybe eventually we'll be able to do these studies. Uh, But I know, at least for me, that the psychedelics opened the door for me, Mm -hmm. but the meditation practice has done so much more to stabilize change for the better in my kind of default state of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was uh, talking to some people today, but because I knew I was going to take this about comparisons among like marijuana, LSD, psilocybin. And I realized like, okay, so they have some things obviously in common. You tend to get things, uh, sensory experiences uh, can become more vivid or more acute in all three cases. Uh, But, you know, marijuana, it seems to me, as a rule, uh, doesn't naturally lead to any kind of transcendence of the self or breakdown of the self. And in fact, can be the opposite. You can become, Mm -hmm. you know, your animal appetite, because your sensory experience is so heightened, your animal appetites can uh, be harder to control. Um, Whereas... You know, with LSD and psilocybin, it seems to me there's a little more. And I mean, I should say, uh, if anyone's wondering how I know, well, for one thing, I was young once. And uh, uh, I, I mean, as for marijuana, I'm now in, in a state. I don't mean I don't mean I'm now high. I mean, I'm living in a state in the United States where marijuana is now legal. Uh, but um, uh, so. I can speak unabashedly about that, although I don't, I don't actually uh, imbibe very often. But, uh, but as for, uh, but you know what I mean? So, so like LSD and psilocybin, I mean, LSD, I, I always thought it kind of naturally turns you into this anthropologist from Mars mm. who's in a certain sense almost alienated from the human experience. Whereas with marijuana, you're just, you're more drawn into the human experience. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense? Oh, no, they're totally different neurotransmitter systems. So, you know, marijuana works on the endocannabinoid system. We have a whole uh, cannabinoid system that that clicks into. And psilocybin and LSD are working on the serotonin system. So totally different um, neurotransmitter systems that those are activating. In terms of how they relate to a spiritual practice, you know, one of the best theories about how psychedelics works right now is within the predictive processing frame, which is the Rebus model, which is relaxed expectations and beliefs under psychedelics. And Mm. the idea is that these psychedelics can just loosen up the unconscious constrictive predictions we have about the world. And they can also kind of scramble um, the default connectivity patterns of the brain. So they allow parts of the brain that don't normally talk to each other to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. And that's transient. And then it goes away again when the drug wears off. And, but you can have some very interesting insights and yes, like life-changing insights in those states. Uh, But the brain state is transient. Whereas with meditation, I think what's happening there is that the brain is changing more slowly, but the changes are more stable. So I've seen some in my thesis data, I have like 32 uh, fMRI scans and half meditators, half non-meditators. And in the meditators, parts of their brains are connected in ways that they're just not supposed to be. (laughs) 
Hmm. And it's impossible to tell because I did a cross-sectional study, which means I just studied one data point in each person. So the meditators had already been meditating for over a decade. Their brains might have started out that way, and that's what got mm -hmm. them interested in meditation in the first place. But my mm -hmm. suspicion is that over time, as you're gradually, over and over, you know, every day, changing the default way your brain wants to process information and just tweaking it slightly, that over time that results in these stable, lasting changes in the structure and function of the brain. Okay. So yeah. does that mean when you say more connected, there's more of a correlation among levels of activity in these yes. different parts of the brain than there would normally be? Exactly. And typically the brain is composed of a bunch of different networks that each have their own functions and the networks very rarely talk to one another um, unless something very unexpected happens and you need to update a prediction and then it looks like communication happens across networks. However, in the experienced meditators that I was studying as part of my PhD thesis, different nodes of networks that really are not supposed to be talking to each other were talking to each other. And so parts of the brain that do uh, attention seem to be connecting up with the default mode network in the meditators and mm. not in the non-meditators. And then this has also been shown to transiently happen when you're on a psychedelic. Mm. And just to literally wave my hands, I think that's part of the experience people have when they say, uh, I became one with everything. I think it's the default mode network connecting up with the attention and perception networks. So it's the sense of I and the sense of the world coming together. Okay. So is it the case that normally there would be an inverse correlation between the attention part on the one hand and the default mode network? I mean, almost by definition, because exactly. the, the default mode network is active when you're not paying attention to anything in a focused way. Mm -hmm. So normally there would be an inverse correlation. And you're saying that experienced meditators kind of, well, while they're in a meditative state, there's more of a correlation, a positive correlation between those two, or or is it just in a, as a, on a regular basis in the course That's of their everyday a, lives? On a regular basis, okay. just looking at connectivity patterns, there was then, one node of the attention network that was connecting up with one node of the default mode network. And then in psychedelics the uh, induce that kind of positive correlation. They, they, they bring that kind of poor, uh, positive correlation, and, and then it, it, it's transient. I mean, maybe it'll come and go during the experience itself, but certainly falls away after the psychedelics. Right. Result. And it will maybe per precipitate insights that you remember that could lead to lasting change, but it's going to it's going to come online and then it's going to go away when the drug goes away. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, OK, so uh, I want to well, I want to keep talking about all this stuff and I want to talk about 5-MeO and uh, the uh, its alleged ability to extinguish the self, uh, which I know you have some thoughts on. Uh, however, um, as you know, as I explained to you, uh, we uh, there are in the in the brutal commercial world we live in, there are paywalls. Um, and uh, so what I generally do with a non-zero podcast is make uh, more than half of each conversation available to the public. Um, but then uh, have an overtime session that is available to people who are paid subscribers of the Non-Zero Newsletter, which you can become by Googling Non-Zero and Substack or by clicking a link in the show notes in your podcast app. Uh, and once you uh, have become a Non-Zero member, 
You can then set up a special podcast feed so you'll never have to, it'll never get complicated again. All of the podcasts you see will include the overtime segments. Uh, And Katie, I want to thank you for agreeing to stay for overtime. But before we do that, I want to give you a chance to say anything you might say, uh, like if you had not attained enlightenment and still had a self, what would you do by way of, (laughs) what would you, what would you do by way of self-promotion right now? Like where, where can people find your work? You can talk more about the Olympic if you want. That's the best way I have ever been asked that question. <laughs> well, thank you. We, we, we're, we're, this is no ordinary podcast you're on. <laughs> so, yeah, I would encourage people to check out the Olympic. Um, and the, the one thing I want to say to just kind of sum up our whole discussion is that it's very, um, if you're interested in any of these topics, bringing in the other uh, the other elements makes things more interesting. So I would encourage you, if you're interested in psychedelics, to establish a practice. If you're interested in practicing and you're interested in consciousness, it's really good idea to talk to the other explorers of these states. And uh, that being said, Alembic is one place that you can do that. Um, we're bringing together practitioners and teachers across all of these different ways of knowing. And the best part about what we're doing is that we're allowing all of the practitioners, all of the teachers to talk to one another so that all these different ways of knowing and ways of seeing can be in dialogue. So if you're local, we're in West Berkeley, come visit us. If you're not local, we have a Twitter, an email list, and a YouTube channel where we just release all of the meditations that are happening in the space for free and anyone can meditate with us for free. So that's uh, youtube.com slash the Alembic. Okay. That Sounds great. Uh, so yes. thank you for everyone who's listened this far and will not be with us the rest of the way, but also thank you to those who will. And now we are going into overtime. <laughs> 